the world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. Welcome to the World of Islam podcast. My name is Amin Tais. Today we continue discussing some aspects of Islamic law. I had presented the four sources that Muslim jurists, particularly Sunni jurists, had come to accept as the four main sources of legal rulings, namely the Quran, the Sunnah as embodied in the Hadith, Qiyas and Ijma or consensus. Today I will focus on Ijma. But before dealing with Ijma within the system of interpretation that Muslim legal theorists developed, it is very useful to the listener to be reminded here that all these four sources have histories and that unlike the impression that might come out of using these terms today, they did not mean the same exact thing to social actors, to Muslims, to Muslim scholars of all times and places. Rather, the perception and the understanding of what these sources and concepts meant really evolved, changed, and were part of processes of adaptation and debate. Although this limited podcast will not be able to catch these complexities, I insist that these complexities must be kept in mind because they highlight the constant struggle of communities to maintain a balance between their ideals and their realities, between their traditions and their changing circumstances, between their sense of justice and the weight of power structures that seek to impose their will on society. So, the concepts of Sunnah, Ijtihad, and Ijma interacted with each other and were shaped by the circumstances and intellectual horizons of different times. All three concepts seem to have had precedence in the pre-Islamic tribal setting. The message of Muhammad that transcends tribal affiliation and the stretch of the community of believers far beyond the limits of Arabia led to shifts in the understanding of these concepts. Ijma or consensus that in the tribal setting was confined to agreement within that tribe was now to be stretched, but it remained a political concept. It was a rallying concept, one that was extremely useful in stressing unity in a community that saw major fights and splits soon after Muhammad had died, as we saw in the episodes on the First and Second Civil Wars. In a way, we could say that Ijma 
with a political response seeking to keep the community together under the leadership of the early caliphs who were given allegiance to by significant number of people although definitely not by all. In fact, this leadership was hotly contested in a number of corners with a particular group calling for the establishing of Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law Ali as the imam or leader. Both consensus and imam were in this early context mainly political terms, but with time and with many subsequent developments within the community, both consensus and imam would gain a religious veneer, so that consensus would become an important component of the religious worldview of those who would be known as Ahlu al-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, which could be translated as the people of Sunnah and consensus, known for short as Sunnis. The Imam would become an important concept of the religious vision of those known as a Shia, the Shiites. So, from the political answer to who should inherit the political authority of Muhammad as head of the community, we move to who inherits the spiritual or religious authority of Muhammad. The Shiites would argue it was the family of Muhammad, Alul Bayt, particularly the male descendants of Ali and Fatima, Muhammad's daughter. These are the Imams. They have special inspiration from God that makes them infallible in interpreting scripture and in guiding the community in the religious sphere. As a parallel to and in response to that, the Sunnis argued that the community as a whole inherits the religious authority of Muhammad. Thus, when the community agrees on a religious matter, when there is an ijma, a consensus, this ijma is infallible. Now for both the concept of imam and the concept of ijma, there were many debates as to what they mean and how they function. In the field of Sunni law, we see a move from consensus of the community to consensus of the jurists only. We see in this the growing power of the fuqaha, the jurists within the community, but also the inevitability of the growth of religious knowledge far beyond the intellectual capacity of the average person. That being said, even within the ranks of the jurists, the validity and possibility of ijma' was hotly debated. There were those who argued that only the ijma' of the companions was valid. There were those who remained skeptical about the ability to ground ijma' on a solid ground 
given that the scriptural sources did not contain clear and unambiguous texts establishing Ijma as a source of law. And those hadiths that are clear enough, like the famous La tajtami'u ummati ala dalala, my community cannot agree on an error, these hadiths were related by single chains and therefore only engendered probable knowledge, ilm dhanni, which is not enough to support an infallible source that creates certain knowledge, ilm qat'i. But even with all these difficulties, consensus, ijma' continued to play an important role. It is, of course, one of the four sources of law, as I mentioned earlier. Importantly, it is a powerful rhetorical tool to be used against the centers. For if ijma' is proclaimed, the centers are on dangerous ground. It is like rejecting a clear text of the Qur'an itself. At the level of the legal methodology of the legal specialists in its mature stages, consensus really functions not as a direct source of legal rulings, but as a tool that transfers a ruling from the domain of uncertainty or ambiguity to that of certainty. For example, if a legal ruling is reached through ijtihad, through qiyas that we discussed in the last episode, it is a ruling that remains in the domain of the probable and debatable. But if an ijma' occurs over that legal ruling, it becomes binding. It moves to the level of certainty. With that, I leave you in peace. Thank you for listening.